Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 15 this morning. So we're looking this morning at a passage from James that speaks to endurance. Of course, we're not just talking about the endurance that is necessary uh, to get through a week of kids club. We're talking about the endurance that is necessary to get through a lifetime of pursuing after Jesus Christ. So if you would, uh, our custom here, the way we, we typically operate for, for our guests this morning, uh, we will read the text and then we will bow for a word of prayer, ask God to open our minds to shine his spirit upon the word that we can fully grasp what he's saying. So we're going to read the text, then we'll pray, and then we will get to work. So if you would, look at, look at James chapter 1, uh, verses 12 to 15, and read with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own Desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's bow forward to prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that you saw fit to speak to us through James, to give us this encouragement to endure, to persevere, to remain steadfast. Father, as we consider your word this morning, We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand exactly what it is you're saying to us, Father. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and that your word would be an encouraging one that would give us the drive and the energy and the motivation to carry on, to pursue you with a whole heart, with all that we are. Lord, we ask that you help us not just to pursue you today or for the next week. Father, our prayer, our request is much, much larger. We, we ask you this morning, Lord, that you would create in all of us, by the power of your Spirit, a resolve to pursue you for our whole lives with all that we are. And we know that that is a race that will require much endurance. So by your grace and your mercy, we ask that you would give us that grace today, Lord, that strength today to pursue you for the rest of our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As you read the book of, in the book of Exodus, you read, sorry, the book of Genesis, as you read about Joseph, you know, there's a couple of chapters there, Genesis chapters 37 to 41, that just sort of detail in in very brief and succinct terms the life of Joseph. It's a Cinderella type of story. It's a man who's sold into slavery, and eventually he rises out of slavery and becomes the prime minister of Egypt, serving as the right-hand man to Pharaoh. As you read that story, you encounter certain different elements in his life. He goes from being the number one servant in a, in a wealthy Egyptian's house, an Egyptian by the name of Potiphar. He goes from there to being in prison. And from prison, he eventually rises up and becomes the prime minister, uh, the right-hand man to Pharaoh. What you may not be quick to grasp as you look at the life of Joseph is that he probably spent, and, and scholars are not in complete agreement on this, he probably spent anywhere from 7 to 11 years in prison. 7 to 11 years of his life in a jail cell. And so it's easy when you read Genesis to, to read about this man who just trusts in the Lord and eventually he rises out of the jail cell. 
But what you don't seem to grasp is that he was there for a long time, trusting in the Lord. I've always wondered, what would have sustained him through that trial? What would have sustained him through the difficulty of living in a jail cell for as long as an 11-year period of time? And it's not like he had a Bible like you and I do. He wouldn't have had any scriptures at his disposal. He wouldn't have had any encouraging word. All he would have had is really the memories of his relatives. The stories that had been handed down from generation to generation. His great-grandfather, Abraham, who received a promise from God that he would one day have a child, and this child, through this child, all the nations would be blessed. Do you know how long Abraham waited for that promise to be fulfilled? 25 years. So long, in fact, that he was utterly convinced he was beyond childbirthing capacity, him and his wife. 90 years old before he's able to have a child. And then his child, Isaac, marries a beautiful woman, uh, a beautiful woman, and uh, they are told that the younger son, Jacob, will be served by the older son, Esau. That doesn't make a lot of sense, and I'm not really sure how God's promise is going to work out there. And again, it happens through some really unusual circumstances, betrayal, deception, deceit. But at the end of that time, Jacob does find that he is the dominant brother of the two, that he receives the birthright. And how long does it take for the promise given to Jacob's parents to be fulfilled in Jacob? A whole lifetime. And then Jacob, Joseph's father, makes his way off into the wilderness. He encounters a beautiful girl. He knows this is the girl that God has for him. And he makes a deal with her father. I'll work for you for seven years in order to marry this beautiful, wonderful lady. And how long does he end up having to work? Fourteen years. Again, as an act of treachery and betrayal. And so here's Joseph. He knows he worships a God who has given him these dreams, these visions of the future. And he knows that God is doing something through him. You can imagine his discouragement as day after day, month after month, year after year, five years, six years, seven years, eight years, ten years, maybe even as many as eleven years. And he's still not sure how God is going to fulfill the promise. And you know he was tempted to say maybe God isn't faithful. Maybe enduring for the sake of his name isn't really worth it. It's easy when we read the Bible to see these characters and to see their whole lives in a snapshot. And then you and I, we're sitting here today and we're thinking, you know, how am I going to get through this next week of work? How am I going to stand up and be a faithful representative for Jesus Christ just in my cubicle or in my neighborhood? I live on a cul-de-sac. I am the only one in my cul-de-sac that thinks anything of religion or God or Jesus Christ. I wonder to myself, how am I going to ever get these guys to a point to where they're ready and willing to hear about how much God loves them? And for many of us in this room today, we're probably struggling. I have two children, and many of us in this room have lots of, we're a big children's church, we got lots of kiddos. 
So I imagine some of the moms and some of the dads in the room are thinking, how am I going to be able to take my child from where they are today and raise them in such a way that they'll love the Lord with all their heart and soul 18, 20, 25 years from now? We're looking at long-term, long-term running of the Christian life, the long-term running of the race. And all that Joseph would have had to sustain him was the memory and the knowledge of his ancestors before him, and that's all he needed. We have something much, much better. We have the Word of God. In fact, Paul makes a statement in Romans, these things are written down for you. The Scriptures are recorded for you, for your encouragement, for your endurance. And that's exactly what James is wanting to say right now. He's writing, as many of you are aware, James is probably the first book of the New Testament written. It's written undoubtedly at a time of intense persecution in which the Jerusalem church is undergoing severe trials and severe persecution in which people are being martyred left and right. And through it all, he says, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and tribulations of various kinds, knowing, and again, he's referencing the trials and the tribulations, he says, knowing that these trials and these tribulations are producing And he uses this word, hupomone. The ESV translation renders it as steadfastness. You can look there in verse 4, verses 3 and 4. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or or the Greek word is hupomone. And that's the same word he uses again in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. Hupomone. What does this word mean? What does steadfast mean? Again, it's a combination of two words in the Greek text. It's a, and if you understand the preposition, the prefix on the word, you know what the word is saying. Hupa, it's a Greek preposition. It means under, uh, meno, like to abide or dwell or remain. So literally, bearing under or abiding under or bearing up under. So what James is saying here is blessed, that is happy, blessed, privileged, God's favor is upon the man who remains. Hupomone. Under it. Blessed is the man who remains under the burden. Blessed is the man who remains under the trial. Blessed is the man who bears up under it. I'm from Texas. I had a really good friend who almost took state in terms of powerlifting. Now, some of you may not be familiar with powerlifting. It's a sport where guys get around and basically try to lift as much weight as they possibly can. Uh, he had two different powerlifting types of events that he was involved in. One was, uh, you know, the, the cling, where you bring the thing, you lift it up off the ground and just try to push it up onto your chest, you know, and get it up over your head. And then the other one was the squat. Now, my friend, some of you have met him. His name is, is Dylan. He, he's been here and visited a time or two. And if you remember Dylan, for those of you who met him, he's he's just this big, boxy guy. He's awesome. And he looks like he could bench press a ton of weight. And the reason for that is because he can. I I have a picture of him uh, in which he looks sort of like a miniature version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is back when he was in high school, going to competitions, bench pressing all this weight. And the bar has got, you know, the 45-pound plates, the big ones. He's got, I've lost count, like, There's like five or six on either side of this thing. And the bar is literally like just bending on his shoulders, like literally just bending. 
and his neck is swollen. He's got all these little veins popping out. You know, it looks gross. I'm going to be honest with you, but it's amazing at how much weight the guy could push up in his heyday. Hupomone is a reference to that. Literally pushing up the weight, literally being able to bear up under the burden. And that's what James is saying here. This is a church that's going through all kinds of persecution, all kinds of trials. They are being tortured and told that it will all stop if they will just deny Christ. And so what you would expect is for them, for James or the pastor, the other leaders of the church, say, you know what, let's just tone it down a bit. You know, let's not just be as vocal as we possibly can be. Let's, let's just... You know, we know we're Christians, we know that we worship Jesus, we know who we follow, and and these guys, they they clearly don't want that, they they were pretty ticked off at that, they're killing us left, right, and center, let's just keep this thing to ourselves, right? That's what you'd expect, that is not what James says. The choice of the word here is endure, bear under the strain of it. It comes with a promise says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who bears up under the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the unfading crown of life. The word unfading isn't there. We know that from previous texts that we've looked at. For those of you who are joining us for the first time today, we've taken the last four four weeks now to work our way through the scriptures to look at the, the promise of reward, the crown that is there for those who are faithful to Christ. And we find in the New Testament canon, the first book that was written, it's right there in the first chapter. Endure, persevere, bear up under it, and there's a reward there for you. There's a promise of a crown. Now, this verse in relation to those that follow is a bit interesting. If you'll notice, he goes on to talk about those things which knock us off the Christian life. He talks about sin, he talks about desires. Look with me. He makes a statement beginning in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here's the problem with the Christian life. We all want the crown. We all want to hear Jesus say at the end of time, well done, good and faithful servant. We all want to hear that. What is the thing that keeps us from chasing after that crown? Us. Specifically, sinful desires. Here's the connection of the verse. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. From there, he goes on to talk about when we stumble, when we fall. Don't accuse it of being God's fault. Don't accuse God. Which means that the individual who fails to arrive at the crown, the individual who fails to receive the full reward of God, is a man of excuses. He's a man who, when he stumbles, when he fails, is tempted to point the finger and to say, Well, this all came about by God's design. James says that's that's not really how it works. We're tempted to look for places 
to put the blame when we stumble and when we fall. We've been doing it forever. When we share our faith, how many of you have ever encountered the objection? If God is so good, why does he allow us to live in a world as miserable as this one? Or if God is so good, why does he empower the evil and the suffering and the pain that happens in this world? Now, the excuse is, okay, there might be a God, but I'm not going to worship that God because he's to blame for all the bad stuff, basically. In other words, he's offering an excuse. Look at what James says there. He says, let no one say. In other words, you are not allowed to say this. This is not something that any of us can claim as an excuse. When we encounter trials, when we are persecuted for our faith, or when we are tempted in any regard not to run the race that God sets before us, we are never allowed to object and say it's God's fault. It's not his fault. The reason being is because God's desire for us is not to tempt us. His desire for us is that we would win the race before us. James makes the explicit statement, nobody's allowed to say this. Nobody's allowed to say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God because it's not who God is. It's not his nature. He's not a trickster God. He's not a manipulative God. He's not holding out this thing here, but all the while working behind the scenes to knock you off of your course. His desire for us, for all of us in this room, is that we would become all that he desires for us to become. And he does all that he can to facilitate that, to enable us to reach the goals that he has set out before us. So when we say it's God's fault, we fundamentally misunderstand who God is. James makes the statement, God cannot be tempted. Now that's an interesting rebuttal. The character of God's heart is such that nobody can tempt him. Satan cannot tempt God. Now, that's not, when we encounter it, that's not necessarily an adequate explanation, okay? How is God's inability to be tempted a foundational pillar to the idea that it's not his fault when I'm tempted? What James is saying is that God is singular in his purpose. He doesn't have conflicting desires inside of him. He knows exactly what he wants, and he makes a beeline going exactly the direction he wants to go. He's not wandering. He's not experimenting. He's not pondering multiple options. He's not trying to decide between different things to do. God is singular, and he is wholly committed to his course, which means that whatever bad things happen in your life cannot be attributed to him because he is a good God, and he only pursues after good. Which means that when you and I are tempted, the temptations may be allowed into our life by God, but he is not the cause of those temptations, he is not the source of those temptations, and indeed, he is the strength that we need to get over them because he is pure and singular in his purpose. It says, don't say it's God's fault. It's not. Because God cannot be tempted, 
and in case you didn't notice it, because he himself cannot be tempted, because he is singular in his goals, he would never be the source of temptation in your life. That's exactly what it says in the very next phrase there. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So then, how does temptation work? Where does temptation come from? If this sinful, cruel world that we live in, though created by God, is not ultimately the product of God's activities, how do we get this world full of temptation and evil? Where does it come from? And the answer is you and me. James goes on, he makes a statement. We are tempted, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, look at the clear parallel that's implied in the text. God is singular in his purposes. He only desires good. He never tempts us. Where does temptation come from? It comes from a desire that we have. Now, you put these two things together, you've got God's desire, which is good, which is whole, which is wonderful, and then you've got sinful desire. The implication is that what we want is not what God wants. The desires we have, the appetites we have, the things we crave in our heart are not always consistent are not always the same as what the Father wants. So that when we struggle in the Christian life, when we go through hardships in the Christian life, not necessarily the hardships of persecution, but the temptation to quit, that has to do with an inner desire in our heart that does not agree with the desire that is in God's heart. I think it's a pretty spectacular thing for a pastor in the first century to say to his church congregation that is literally being imprisoned, arrested, tortured, and executed, to say, bear up under it, there's a crown waiting for you, and from there immediately to transition into this discussion, this theological discussion about God's single nature, his single-minded purpose, his one goal, his one direction, and that it's ultimately good, which implies that it should be good for us to pursue that even if it means trials and tribulations. Indeed, in the second verse of this book, he says, count it joy. Our natural inclination when we encounter trials and difficulties is not joy. We're not happy. We want it to be easier. But let's consider that temptation for a second. If it's easy then it doesn't really exalt the value and the magnitude of God, does it? In other words, when we want it easy, we're wanting things based upon our desire for ourselves, not based upon our desire for the Father. You know, a number of years ago, Shanti and I, we were first married. We didn't have two pennies to rub together. We're dirt poor. We're university students. Uh, and, and we're trying to, like, 
buy some cheap used furniture to put into our apartment, and we're rolling around all the thrift shops, and we're going to all the, you know, all the, you know, pawn shops and things of that nature, looking for, like, some cheap furniture that we can buy that we can put into our store. Now, we could have gone to Walmart and bought some really nice furniture that looked good, uh, but probably wasn't good. If you've ever bought one of those particle board, uh, you know, TV stands or anything like that, you know, after like a few years, and being college students, some of you may be able to relate to this, you're moving like every other semester. Those things get banged up, they fall apart, right? I remember we were in a pawn shop, and we're looking at this thing, and it's only marginally more expensive than the cheapo particle board, uh, you know, furniture we could have gotten at Walmart. And uh, I told the guy, I said, you know, uh, you should match Walmart's prices. Shanti and I are there, and this is like her husband's first attempt at negotiations, right? <clears throat> I said, you know, I saw a particle board, you know, thing over at Walmart that looks way nicer than this thing. It's got scratches on it. It's clearly been used by several owners. We, we, why don't, I mean, and it's cheaper. We could just go buy that thing, and you're asking, I know it's not that much more, but it is a little bit more. Why don't you just drop your price and, and price match Walmart? He says, I'm not going to do that. I said, why? He says, I want you, now this, this particular TV stand, this is in the days in which you had tube TVs, not flat screen. So it actually has to be able to bear some weight. He says, I want you to stand on this thing. Okay, so I stood on it. He says, go ahead and jump up and down a little bit. So I'm, I'm jumping up and down on this thing. It's like, is it holding you up? I say, yeah. He says, follow me. We go into the back storeroom, and, I, you know, I think that the stuff at Walmart was a little bit better quality than this thing, but he had this piece just for this particular question. He was ready for me. He said, this is similar to what you're going to get at Walmart. And, and I know this thing, he saved this thing just for such a question as what, as what I was proposing. He says, go ahead. And I'm telling you, there's no way I was getting on this thing. He says, go ahead, stand on that thing. And I was like, nah, Shanti, go ahead. You can jump on that thing. It's your turn, you know. I'll let my wife do it. <laughs> um, we saw this thing, and I, I remember, like, looking at it, and uh, I'm sure this is what every pawn shop owner the universe over does. I, I've heard of other people having similar experiences. I'm sure they get this question. He says, I'll do it, and he stands up on it, and, of course, the thing falls flat, and the particle board splinters, and it's glued, and it's got these little pegs and these little, you know, things that you screw together to put this thing together, and it cannot hold any weight. It looks halfway decent, as soon as you try to apply pressure to it, it folds. He made a statement to me that I'll never forget. He took us back out in the showroom. He said, you see this deal here? And it's got doors on it. And he's slamming the doors and they're holding up. It's made out of solid wood. I had already jumped on it. He said, this thing here, I'll never forget this. This is the genuine That other thing over there, that's just a pretend wannabe thing. It says, for your money, this will last. The other one, after one move, you might as well chuck it. That's what James is saying here. One type of Christian endures because one type of Christian is made of something sturdier 
another type of Christian does not endure. And the reason is because he is not made of the same sturdy substance. What's the difference between the two? James alludes to it right here. One has his gaze, one has his focus on the crown. One says, blessed are you when you run the race. And immediately the question presents itself, how long do we have to run this race for? He doesn't answer that question, which means that he doesn't think the race is over until you're dead. This is an ongoing, never-ending, it's a simple, present, active, indicative verb. He makes a statement, continue on remaining steadfast. Be remaining steadfast. Always remaining steadfast. Always hupomone, bearing up under it. Just do it. Do it for how long? Do it forever. Do it until you die. Do it because when you have stood the test, you get the crown of life. And then he contrasts that with people who then make excuses. I stumbled. God did this to me. I failed because God knocked me off course. You have no one to blame but yourself. Any fault, any failure, any stumbling off the course has to do with some internal desire in your heart. Now this week, we're going to be running a race. The end is in sight. You're not going to go on doing children's club forever. I would like for you to do children's club. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's going to be all day for some of you. Maybe you're only familiar with doing the three-hour children's club. We do an all-day gig here. It's going to be hot. Temperatures this week are going to go upwards of 35, 36 in Fahrenheit. That's like mid-90s, upper 90s, getting close to the 100 range. Maybe that's okay for you guys from Kansas. You're like, you know what? We're used to that. For the VBS workers, the kids club workers from Kamloops, that's hot for us. We've been through it. We had 40s last week. I know all the stuff you're thinking in your heads right now. Just know that no matter how used to it you are, it's still going to be hot this week, okay? You're going to be tired. You're going to sweat. You're not going to drink as much water as you probably ought to. The temptation is there to focus on yourself. Our focus this week needs to be on those kids. Our focus this week needs to be on running this race that we've committed to. Which means that even though there are any number of things that are going to go wrong, and even though there are any number of things that are going to divert our focus and our attention, and we're going to be very tempted to think about personal needs and what we have to have in order to be successful or, or to get along with teammates or what have you, what we really need is to focus on these kids, many of whom do not know Jesus Christ. And it is a race. And there will be temptations. Keep your focus on the glory of God and on knowing Him. Some of you are thinking, yeah, and that's okay because it's only a week. It is only a week for Kids Club. 
But what I've just said to the kids' club workers, it applies to all of us until the day that we die. You see, we're called to run the Christian race, not with a focus on ourselves, but with our focus and our gaze on the Lord, on God, on Jesus, for the sake of making his name known to Kamloops, to the interior of British Columbia, all across Canada, and indeed all across the world. Which means that every time we are tempted to quit, every time we are tempted to take shortcuts, every time we are distracted by personal needs, personal complaints, any time the pressure turns up and we're tempted to say, you know what, following Jesus Christ in this particular moment, I, you know, I think it's okay, it's, it's reasonable for me. Don't say that. Jesus' desire in your life is not that you would learn to take shortcuts or to find the easy way out or to find the most comfortable path or to find the best, most convenient way to do things. The exhortation from the book of James is actually the opposite of that. Don't find the easy way out. Keep your focus on God and bear up under it. Now, that's okay in the short term. But again, this text has in mind the long-term race. The crown of life is promised to those that can run the race all the way through to the finish line. We rightly admire people who have endured long terms of service. Individuals who have served in some capacity for a long period of time. We understand the hardships they face and we compliment them and honor them for their long tenure together. You know this to be true. Anytime you've seen an old couple in their mid-70s who've been married for 50 years or more, still walking down the street, still holding hands, still just as much in love at 70 as they were at 20. And you see that long-term commitment, that long-term faithfulness, and you admire that. And rightly so. There's something inside of all of us that intrinsically values and understands the nobility of long-term steadfastness. Where I'm from in Texas, there's a pastor that used to pastor the church, First Baptist Church of Dallas. His name was W.A. Criswell. He was a pastor at this church for 40 years, over 40 years. I was listening to him preach, watching a YouTube video of him preaching one time, and at the end of the worship service, I observed him calling up at the end of the worship service baptism candidates, individuals who are about to be baptized. And he was introducing them to the congregation before they got baptized. And he calls up this boy, and this boy comes running up the aisle and just wraps his arms around this gray-haired old man. He's a young guy, maybe 8, 9, 10 years old. And the pastor, W.A. Criswell, reaches down, picks him up, gives him a hug. His father comes forward, and his grandfather comes forward. And Pastor Criswell introduces the young man to the church congregation. He says, we're going to baptize in a little while this little boy here. I don't remember his name now. He says, I'm so happy for this young man to come and get baptized. You know, I baptized his father 20 years ago. And then he looks at the old grandfather and he says, now help me, John. I can't quite remember. Was that 34 or 35 years ago that you were baptized here. 
And the old man told him. That's a man who pastored a church, who stood faithful to his church over the course of 40 years, impacting the lives of three generations. That's long-term faithfulness. That's long obedience in the same direction. And when you look at a man like that, who's been faithful to his God and faithful to his church, faithful to serve the Lord, you wonder, what is this crown of life? I'm telling you, you can sense it and feel it in that church congregation as they look at their pastor with love and admiration. Listen to me, Bridge Baptist Church, friends from Knoll Avenue. I want you to have the crown of life. It is something far more beautiful and far more precious than anything I could ever describe to you. It's beyond anything you could imagine, but its essence is this. It is honor and glory and recognition. It doesn't come in a day. It doesn't come in a week. It comes from a lifetime of steadfast obedience. Joseph spent upwards of maybe 11 years in prison. His father, who labored for 14 years to marry his wife before him, his great-grandfather, 25 years before God's promises were fulfilled in his life, you think maybe it's coming to the end. Maybe now God is doing things in a quicker period of time. No, the successor to Joseph is going to be a man by the name of Moses. He's going to be 80 years old before he's ready to lead, and it's going to take him another 40 years before he's going to bring the people up to the threshold of the promised land. They're a bit nervous, his brothers, when his father passes away, when Jacob dies. They think, okay, now Joseph is going to stick it to us because we sold him to slavery all those many, many, many years ago. You wonder what a man like that who sat in jail for upwards of 11 years and then served his prime minister over Egypt for many, many years after that. You wonder what he's going to say to these guys, his brothers who sold him into slavery. They come to him, they say, you know, be nice to us. We're your brothers. We didn't mean anything by it. That's my paraphrase. And Joseph's response is, don't fear. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It takes God in some instances, as many as 80 years to bring Moses to a place where he's useful. Joseph spends 11 years in prison. Abraham waits 25 years. The greatest impacts you find in the Bible didn't come in a night. The greatest differences weren't made by a single decision. They were made as a result of a lifetime of committed faithfulness. God uses those individuals to bring about the salvation of a great many. So I encourage you today, follow the example of Joseph, hear the exhortation of James, bear up under it. Let's pray.